Daniel Pink. Welcome to the Icons by Motiversity. What I had is I had this giant database of regrets and I would look on my computer screen and see them listed there. These are regrets that people have that say, if only I'd taken the chance. They didn't start a business. They didn't ask that crush out for a date. They didn't travel. They had an opportunity at, at one point in their life to do something beyond play it safe. They chose not to do that and now they regret it. In a weird way, regret also taught me about what makes a good life because as I had you know, collected 16,000 regrets from people in 105 countries and when they told me their regrets, in a sense they were also telling me about what made life worth living. You know your ideas are compelling when Masterclass had you offer a course on the art of persuasion. Or maybe it's the 10 million view TED talk or the viral videos on motivation. However you first heard of them, somehow most of us have found a way to be captivated by Daniel Pink, author of seven books, including his latest that's out everywhere called The Power of Regret. And it's worth mentioning, four of the last six have been New York Times bestsellers, two of them number one, translated into 42 languages. And Dan was host and co-executive producer of Crowd Control on National Geographic, which aired in more than 100 countries. He's been a contributing editor at Fast Company and Wired, published in the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, The New Republic, Slate, and many more. And before all of that, Dan worked in politics and was the chief speechwriter to Vice President Al Gore. The accolades are as long as my arm. Daniel Pink, welcome to the Icons by Motiversity. Uh, thank you for that very long introduction. Um, it was longer than, longer, than, longer than my arm, but I appreciate the very, very generous words, Tyler. Absolutely. I mean, I've been, I've been following, fascinated by your work for years. So, I mean, I I'm looking forward to this conversation. I I the power of regret, I feel like, you know, it's, a it's an emotion that we all, to a certain extent, understand. And I'm curious to hear what you've picked up on with that. Um, and, and, you know, we're going to get there in a little bit. We've got some questions maybe about some of your previous books. And the, probably the question that's been burning for me the most is, you've written on work, selling, motivation, creativity, timing, and now regret, like, how do you know when a topic or idea is book worthy? That is such a great question, seriously. And, and the answer to that, Tyler, is that most topics are not book worthy. That's, that's the, that, in some ways, that's the <laughs> most important lesson of any writer. In the same way that, I mean, I'm happily married for 26 years, but in the same way, it's like some people you want to go out on one or two dates with, other people you want to go steady with, very few you want to marry. And, and knowing the difference is incredibly important. I'll tell you what I do to, to discover that. I'm not sure I have any lessons, but I have a practice, if that's helpful, um, is that I have a massive list of ideas of things that might be interesting to me, even questions and shards of things that I will review periodically. And when I review that list of ideas and possible projects, you know, every three months, every four months, I'll go back and look at stuff and I'll realize that a lot of it is just crap. Like, like what was I thinking? Hmm. Like, that's not interesting at all. And then I will know, but that's okay, that's cool. I mean, actually that's a good thing because I, I believe that with ideas, you wanna generate as many as possible. The only way to have a, a good idea is to have a lot of ideas. But then what I'll also see is that a few things end up staying on that list over time. And so those are things I might wanna pursue more deeply. And so, um, and I'll start maybe doing a little bit of research on some of those things and I'll realize, ah, I don't know if I'm not that interested in, maybe that's just an article, it's not really a book. But then for me, something that then makes it even further through that funnel, for every book that I've written, and even many that I haven't, 
I will write a long proposal. All right? Rather than simply say, like some kind of short pitch to an editor or something, hey, I'm going to do a book about rutabagas and why they explain the world. I, I, <laughs> hold on, I'm going to write that one down. Um, uh, what I will do is I will actually do research and I will write maybe a 40-page proposal. And the reason I do that, and this is the long-winded way of actually answering your question, is that that is the test. Okay? Do I care enough about this to write 40 pages? If I don't care enough to write 40 pages, then ah. I'm not going to care enough to, write, to, to um, spend the couple of three years it takes me to write a book. Um, and so that's a test. And so there have been times, truly, when I have written a proposal or written part of a, I've written an entire proposal and got to the end of it and I was like, huh, this is not a book. This is that's not, not it. Uh, and, and the thing is, that's painful because I've spent all that time, but it's not nearly as painful as it would be for me to torture readers with a bad book. <laughs> we appreciate it. I guess that's, uh, that's why you keep landing on the New York Times bestseller list. Well, you know what I actually, the, the, the real thing though, Tyler, is like, and, and I say this because I know like probably some of, the, some of the members of your audience are interested in writing books and, and so forth. And writing a book is really, really hard. Uh, I've been doing it for 20 years. It's still really, really hard. It's a giant pain. And so you have to pick something that you're really, really interested in because not only do you live with that topic for the, the time that you're working on it, but you, at some level you live with it forever. So you mentioned earlier that you might ask me some questions about books that I wrote 15 years ago and 10 years ago. And here's the thing, it's like, I'm totally psyched to talk about those because <laughs> I still love those ideas. Um, but the universe of, thing, of ideas that I love is very, very small. So I try to be as selective as possible. You know, when you're talking about that, that big list that then you know, stuff sticks around over time, it almost makes me think of like a really effective career strategy. And so many of our viewers and listeners are, are worried about their career. Like, I don't have clarity. I need the one thing. Can you give us a sense of your career? Like, how did you end up where you are now? Was it a straight line or something else? <laughs> I don't know what the opposite of a straight line is. <laughs> you know, like, like, I know it's a straight line, a circle. Is a straight line like a jumble? No, there are no straight lines. And, and so, so for me, um, like, I, I mean, I don't say this like to be glib or to be a joke. It's like there, there was not a huge amount of like long-term planning. Uh, at a certain point, I, think, I felt like I needed a long-term plan. But then what I also found is that any long-term plan immediately hits the ugly truth of reality and then becomes a joke. And so for me, I think very carefully about what's next. What's next? E.L. Doctorow, the great novelist, had this lovely metaphor for writing, but I think it's true for, I think it's true at some levels for careers and for life, which is that you're driving on a dark night and you have your headlights on and you can only see, you know, a few meters ahead of you. And that's sometimes aggravating. But the thing is, you can make the whole journey that way. And that's sort of how I feel about it. So what I do, you asked about books, it's like, I don't have any long-term strategy for the books. I just find something that I find an idea, a set of stories, a concept that I find so irresistible that I'm willing to endure the torture of writing it and to get the pleasure of being able to talk about it for the rest of my life. No kidding. I like that idea of the headlights. And you, know, you can always just trust that you'll see the part you need to see. 
you can make the whole journey that way. And a lot of times you can't see the full journey. The, 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 the technique that I use for younger people who, like, like your viewers, who say, okay, you know, it's like, how did you get to be doing, you know, you know I want to come up with my plan. I want to come up with this carefully constructed way of moving from point A to point B to point C to arrive at a particular destination. And my, what I say to them is, okay, guys, hold on. Hold on, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find somebody in their 40s or 50s who is doing something that is cool, that you like, that you admire, that makes a contribution. And then ask that person this question. How did, exactly the question that you asked me, Tyler. How did you get to be doing what you're doing? And I guarantee you that 99 times out of 100, the most interesting, impactful people will answer that question like this. It's a long story because it is the opposite of a line, whatever that is. So somehow through it all, navigated this road, seeing just you know far enough in front of you, started writing books. You, I know you wrote a few books before this. I was fascinated by your free agent workbook. Um, but you know, at Motiversity, motivation is a big topic for us. You wrote the foundational book on motivation. What can you tell us some of the big findings around motivation? I'll give you the, the, the big finding. That book, Drive, which is about 10 years old now, looks at a body of social science on motivation, particularly motivation um, to, on the job and in school. And, and it says a lot of different things. It, what it, but it basically says is that motivation is more complex than we typically realize, that human beings have a mix of motivations, that we have, a, we have biological motivations, that is, we eat when we're hungry, we drink when we're thirsty, we have sex to satisfy those desires. That's not all who we are. We have a reward and punishment drive. We respond sometimes very predictably to rewards and punishments in our environment. But that's not, also, that's, that's not the limit of human motivation. We also do things because we like them, because it's interesting, because they're meaningful to us, because it's the right thing to do. And that's also a big motivation. So what I'm trying to do is, is show people, based on science, this three-dimensional view of human motivation. Now, in terms of the particular finding from the science, there's one that is just, if, if your viewers understand this, they're way ahead of the game, and it's this. There's a certain kind of motivator that we use in organizations, in schools, in many realms of our life. Psychologists call it a controlling contingent motivator. I like to call it an if-then reward. If then, if you do this, then you get that. 50 years of science tells us that if then rewards are great for simple tasks with short time horizons. We love rewards, they get us to focus, but if then rewards are less great for complex tasks with longer time horizons. And if you look at the workplace, the careers that everybody's planning for, we're doing less of this routine algorithmic work and more of the complex creative work, which means that we need organizations that actually use the science of motivation to build structures so that people can do their best work. That's fascinating. So just because it works for kind of small tasks or simple tasks, we then shift that style of motivation into the complex, heavy, difficult tasks, Pre and that's where we get lost. Precisely. And here's the thing. It's like that's understandable. There's not any bad... There's not any animus behind this. It just so happened that in the world of work for a long time, a lot of what people did on the job was simple, routine, and short-term. Turn the same screw the same way over and over again. And so here's the, if we want to respect the science, the science tells us that if-then rewards are not bad for that. So any of you, you want somebody to stuff a lot of envelopes, 
pay them per envelope and give them a bonus for every hundred. You'll get a lot more envelope stuffed. But most of us are not doing envelope stuffing. We're doing things that require more judgment, discernment, creativity, conceptual thinking. And for that, we need a very different motivational regime. And now I'm going to jump around here a little bit, Dan, because you know, I'm just kind of shifting from big monumental book to monumental book. When you wrote When, I wasn't, you know, it's one of those things that it, it, it's, it's in all of our life, timing. But it was almost like I'd never seen somebody break it down before and okay. talk about the relevance of it. And so when you, when you came up with that book, it really felt like there was something here that was like just below the surface. And as soon as you exposed it, so many things started to make sense. What were some of your big takeaways with timing? Well, I mean, among the big things is that timing is much more of a science than an art. Uh, that when we make our timing decisions, both in terms of wow. what we do in a given day, but also sort of how we navigate anything temporal, we, we tend to make those decisions based on intuition and guesswork, when in fact there is this rich body of science out there that gives us guidance. Um, and the, the, the challenge for this science is that it's not one science, it's 25 sciences, that it's spread across all these different domains. And so for that book, that was a very hard book to research because I, I had to look across from uh, social psychology to economics to anthropology to endocrinology to molecular biology to try to make sense of this. But what I found is that we can make systematically smarter, more strategic choices about things like when we do things in a given day. Um, uh, we know how beginnings affect us. We know how midpoints affect us. We know how endings affect us. We know how groups uh, uh, synchronize in time. And, and so for that one, what I was trying to do is, in some ways, figure it out for myself. There were all of these how-to books out there. I wanted to write a when-to book. So 20 years ago, you wrote a, boat, a book called Free Agent Nation. Did you have any sense of what was coming? If you think about the world of work now, did you have any sense for what was coming? Oh, no. No. I mean, uh, you know, I wrote Free Agent Free Agent came out literally 20 years ago. It came out in 2000. It came out in 2001. And what I saw what turned out to be the first stirrings of something. And I was trying to identify that as something that was going to be a big deal. But I mean, on so on so many dimensions, it was like it was it was understated. So, for instance, I talked about in that book about, oh, technology is enabling people to you know, own the means of production and, you know, need organizations less than organizations need them. And that's going to empower people to go out on their own. And that was before, uh, basically before widespread Wi-Fi. I mean, it was, it was before social media. It was before, you know, most people had a smartphone. It was, you know, and so, uh, so it, at some level it was before Zoom, it was, <laughs> it's, you know, just sort of, massively understated about the role of uh, technology uh, as an enabler of our ability to work on our own. So I think that that book was, you know, there's a, there's a, I'm talking to you from Washington, D.C., my, my, my adopted hometown. I've lived here for a long time. Um, but there's a, there's a saying in politics that some politicians are, quote, ahead of the voters. And I think that book might have been a little ahead of the voters. Dan, I I've got a really general question. Like, I know that a lot of where your books end up is on the desk of a business leader, somebody who's kind of guiding some group or some, you know, organization. Oftentimes, you know, they're thinking through your material. This is a general question, but do you have any kind of, like, what's your big 
one piece of advice for business leaders today? Um, I think, honestly, for business leaders is to talk less and listen more. Um, one of the things that's interesting that I, that I find is that we tend to think that leadership is about pure, mostly about assertion, mostly about announcing and talking, when in fact I think that it is as much about humility and listening as it is on anything. And the thing is, it's like most of us are terrible listeners, in part because in our schools we don't teach people to listen. Uh, we, you know, we teach them to read, we teach them to, to, to write, we teach them math, but we say, oh, they have two ears so they know how to listen, but we don't. And so, uh, you know, if I had to, truly, Tyler, if we had to distill it to four words, talk less, listen more. Wow. I feel like that's, uh, that's one of those posters that could sit up in a lot of boardroom walls. Yeah, maybe. I think a lot of leaders wouldn't yeah. know what to do with themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Although, I think what would happen if they put that up in the boardroom wall, everybody would talk about how great it is that they have it up on the wall. <laughs> exactly. I, I, want to, uh, I want to get into regret, um, the power of regret, your new book. What can you tell us about regret? How, do we, how have we misunderstood this emotion? Yeah. How should we understand it? What have you learned? My, oh my, Tyler, I have learned so much about this emotion, and you're exactly right that we do largely misunderstand it. So among the misunderstandings are we think that when we experience regret, it's somehow an aberration, when in fact everybody experiences regret. Regret makes us human. Regret is part of the human condition. What's more, we think that regret makes us weaker, when in fact the research shows that done right, regret can make us stronger, that we can enlist our regrets as a, an engine for forward progress. So, um, so what I'm trying to do in this book is reclaim regret as an indispensable emotion. Uh, what's more is that in a weird way, regret also taught me about what makes a good life because as I had you know, collected 16,000 regrets from people in 105 countries. And when they told me their regrets, in a sense, they were also telling me about what made life worth living. Interesting. So, so my no regrets t-shirt, is, uh, <laughs> is that one of those ones that should be thrown out the window? Well, listen, you know, a no regrets t-shirt is not nearly as bad as the people in the book who have no regrets tattoos. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, it's understandable. Here's the thing. It's like, like, I understand that no regrets philosophy. The problem is, is that it's not possible because we all have regrets. Now, we should try to minimize our future regrets, but the idea that you should never look backward on your life and say, oh, I wish I had done things differently is actually a terrible blueprint for living. Um, and, and I think one of the problems is, you know, especially in North America, is that we're a little over-indexed on positivity. You know, positive emotions are incredibly important, but, and they should outnumber our negative emotions, but we need some negative emotions because they instruct us. And our most prominent negative emotion is regret. And because regret teaches us, it instructs us, it clarifies us, uh, it clarifies what's, what we should be doing and how we should be doing it. And so, um, and so we need to understand how to deal with our negative emotions. We can't ignore them like no regrets. We can't wallow in them like, oh my God, it's so terrible, I'm such an awful person. What we need to do is we need to think about our regrets. And when we think about our regrets, the evidence is pretty clear that they can help us make better decisions, solve problems faster, be better strategists, find greater meaning in our life.
So I think one of the things with regret is that the reason I, we, a lot of people run from them is that they hurt, right? Like there's something about it that feels like this was a negative. This is a, this is a, a psychological landmark of things that didn't go the way I hoped to or I would have done it differently. How do I turn that? Like how do I take something that feels like it hurts and turn it into progress? It's, it's a really good point and this is important. And it, 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 in some ways, it's central. Regret hurts. There's no question about that. But here's the thing. Regret also instructs. And you can't have one without the other. So what you have to do is, so if you avoid the pain, you don't get any of the learning. So what you have to do is be able to process that pain. And I think there's a way for us to do that, to take our regrets, use them as signals. We haven't been taught to do that. That's the problem. We have this weird approach, we have this weird view of negative emotions. Like some of us think, oh, positive all the time. Da, 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 da. That leads to delusion. Some of us get so absorbed in our negative emotions that they, in some ways, exonerate us from making progress. That's a bad idea, too. What we need to do is we need to process our negative emotions in a, in a, in a systematic way. And I, and I think there's a good way to do that. And when you, so I understand with the book, um, you had 16,000 people send you their regrets. I, you know, in certain ways, it feels like a really fascinating study. In certain ways, it must have been really heavy to read all of that. You know, to actually hear people's thoughts, like, what did I regret in life that I'd be willing enough to kind of send into somebody? Yeah. Any, I mean, A, did it feel emotional? And B, were there any stories that stood out to you that feel like really um, kind of almost symbolize the, the power of regret? Sure. I mean, you know, it's interesting. It's an interesting question uh, because what I had is I had this giant database of, of, of regrets and I would look on my computer screen and see them listed there. And you know what? It wasn't that much of a downer because hmm. I felt like people were, for, for a whole host of reasons, I felt like people were trying to make sense of it. That is, that is you know, one of the things that we, there's, there's some interesting research on this. One of the things that we, th we, we think about disclosure of our vulnerabilities and our setbacks and so forth is that people will like us less. And in fact, they actually like us more when we do that. And so I actually had a lot of respect for people willing to disclose and willing to explain. And I felt like I was actually helping them make sense of this regret. So it wasn't that much of a downer. The other thing about it, to, to the second part of your question, which is this, is that over and over and over again, in, among these 16,000 regrets, people kept talking about the same four core regrets. Over and over and over again around the world, the same four regrets kept coming up. And I found that fascinating because there wasn't much national difference. What's more, as I said earlier, these four regrets are revealing because by telling me, by, by telling us, by, by revealing our regrets, we are revealing what we value the most. And so to me, these four core regrets operate as a photographic negative of the good life. That is, if we understand what people regret the most, we actually understand what they value the most. So in a weird way, these 16,000 regrets are not a downer as much as they are a pointer to what makes life worth living. Interesting. I mean, even I'm even hearing the, you know, the bias in my question, right? Assuming that these regrets coming to you would have been this like heavy hit. Whereas in lots of ways, it sounds like it was almost by the nature of somebody writing them down and sending them in, they're now processing them, which is showing 
the progress that they're hoping to make, or at least kind of like lighting the path down that direction. Sure, sure, sure. And also just they're, they're interesting. Anytime anybody tells you a story, it's, in, you know, you're, you're, you're yeah. interested yeah. in it. And, and, you, and, you, and as a human being, you empathize with it. And, and you also see yourself in that. And, and, and in some ways, they were reassuring. So people came to me and said, you know what, I have a regret that I wasn't kind enough to people earlier in my life. I look at that and say, golly, you know what, I have that same regret. And it sort of made me feel a little bit better to know that other people had that regret. Are you willing to tell us what are the four regrets? Sure thing. Uh, so there are, there are four core regrets over and over again, and they, they, they tend to transcend the domains of life. We often think of our regrets as like, oh, I have a career regret. Oh, no, but I have a health regret or I have a romance regret. But what I found is the four regrets are these foundation regrets. Foundation regrets are if only I'd done the work. These are regrets people have about not studying hard enough in university or um, not taking care of their health or smoking or not eating right or not saving money. Small decisions that accumulate to bad consequences. The second one, huge category, boldness regrets. These are regrets that people have that say, if only I'd taken the chance. They didn't start a business. They didn't ask that crush out for a date. They didn't travel. Uh, they had an opportunity at, at one point in their life to do something beyond play it safe. They chose not to do that, and now they regret it. Third category are moral regrets. If only I'd done the right thing. These are people who, at a certain point in their life, could do the right thing or the wrong thing. They do the wrong thing, and it still bugs them, which is in some way, its own way heartening. It shows that I think people want to be good. And the final one are connection regrets. Connection regrets are if only I'd reached out. I and mean, these are regrets about relationships. Um, where you have a relationship, or you should have had a relationship, and it comes apart, usually through drifts, and you want to reach out, but you don't because you think it's going to be awkward and the other side's not going to care, so it drifts out even more, and then in, in some cases it, it ends up being too late. And so these four regrets, to me, reveal, as I said earlier, what makes life worth living. What do we want out of life? We want a stable foundation. We want some stability. We want a chance to do something. We want a chance to learn and grow and lead a psychologically rich life. We want to do the right thing. I'm convinced, Tyler, that most of us want to do the right thing. And what else do we want? We want love. We want connection to other people. That's what makes life worth living. And I think in terms of careers, I think that's what, what makes a good career. I think that what makes, that's what makes an organization that's worth working for. So, so if I'm a, you know, a listener and I'm sitting here thinking, you know, there is a connection regret that I have. You know, I, I should reach out to that person. And there's probably a reason why I, I haven't. I mean, there's, there's something that's, that's blocking it. Yeah. What would you suggest I do? Like, what, what's the, what unlocks that for somebody? Okay, really, really, really important. Okay, so I think the two barriers are this. You think it's going to feel awkward, and you think the other side is not going to care. And here's the reality, both the reality of all these people I interviewed, but also the reality of a lot of research in social science. It's much less awkward than you think. <laughs> Two, the other side almost always cares. You're just wrong about that. And one of the things that I, one of the things that I did, I mean, I have a scene in the book where I talk to somebody who's saying, oh, I lost this, I, I drifted apart from this friend and I'm not sure I, would, I should reach out. And if I reach out, she's gonna think it's creepy. And I finally said, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. How would you feel if she reached out to you? And she said, oh my God, that would be the greatest thing. I'd be so touched. And I'm like, well, hello. Like, you know, extrapolate from your own experience there. And, and, so, and so I really believe if there's a lesson in this book, it's certainly the lesson for me, 
is that if you are at that juncture that you described, should I reach out or should I not reach out? You've already answered the question. Uh, I, I think the lesson is always reach out. Wow. I mean, I like it with, it feels like with regret, you're just diving straight in. It's like, you know, this, this could be awkward. This could be lots of things. Step into it. It sounds like that's one of the kind of core themes. Is that, is that fair to say? Uh, it's basically, yes. Yes, because there's a, there's a third way. Don't ignore it. Don't dodge it. Just confront it. It's much less fearsome than you think. And this way that I think that we can process our regrets is very healthy. So one thing you can do is you can, ref you know, like I, I feel like there's three simple steps that you can take to turn your regrets into engines for progress. One of them yeah, is, please. To is to reframe the regret and the way you think about yourself. Um, so, you know, do you, so a lot of times when we have a regret, one reason that we try to avoid it is that if we really confront it, we start lacerating ourselves saying, you, you know, our, our self-talk is you're an idiot. What are you talking about? Um, and what we should do instead is it sounds gooey, but what we should do instead is treat ourselves with kindness. There's a body of research in what's called self-compassion, which is treating ourselves with kindness rather than contempt. Um, thinking about our own missteps as part of the human condition, not something that only we do. Um, looking at our missteps not as fully definitional of who we are, but as just one part of who we are. And so just sort of being a little better to ourselves. The second thing you can do, which we see, which is a reason why we had 16,000 people offer up their regrets, is disclosure. Disclosure is itself inherently valuable. And we know that it relieves the burden. But the other thing, when we talk about our regrets or even write about them, we take this blobby, amorphous, negative emotion and convert it into words. And that makes it less fearsome. And it begins the sense-making process. So there's a pile of evidence showing that talking about our regrets, even writing about them privately, is a way to defang them. And finally, what we need to do, which is essential, is we need to you know, we can, we can look inward, all right? We can express outward, but then we gotta, we gotta move forward. And the way to do that, in my mind, is to take a step back and extract a lesson from it. Uh, what would you tell your best friend to do? Uh, if, you if you were looking back on this decision 10 years from now, what would you want to have done? If someone else were in your position, what would she do? And, and I think this process of looking inward and treating ourselves with some kindness, expressing outward and disclosing the regret as a way to make sense of it, and then moving forward by taking a step back and extracting a lesson is relatively simple to do and allows us to take these regrets and not be scared of them and not let them debilitate us, but to enlist them as forces for moving forward. Hmm. So self-compassion, to write it down, really make, write it down, tell somebody, make sense of it, like kind of put a package around it, understand it as opposed to just this kind of blob, and then, and then try to figure out the lesson from it so you can move forward. Reframe it by treating yourself with kindness through self-compassion, disclose it to make sense of it, and um, take a step back and extract a lesson from it that you can apply to next time. Brilliant. Is your hope with this book that somebody who might feel like they've got a lifetime of regrets could read it and, and start to work themselves through it? Is that the goal? That's a goal, sure. Um, yeah. what, I, you know, what, I, what I like to do is I, I'm sort of trying to reach the people on, on either side of that. So the people who feel debilitated by their regrets, I, you know, my view is, listen, take one, go through this process. You can enlist it as a force for good. But I also want to do a wake-up call to the people who think they don't have any regrets regrets uh -huh. because they're making, they're making a big mistake too. Um, yeah. And so what I want to do is in some sense, I guess, 
normalize it because it is normal. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, regrets are part of the human condition. They exist for a reason. They're part of our cognitive machinery. The only people without regrets are five-year-olds, people with brain damage and sociopaths. The rest of us <laughs> have regrets, you know? And so instead of, instead of denying that humanity, let's embrace it and use it. So I'm imagining you, you, it would be tough to write a book on regret without going through your own life. Sure. Any, any regrets you'd care to share? Anything that feels like, you know, that stands out? Yeah, all kinds of regrets. Uh, you know, I, I have regrets earlier in my life about not being a kind enough person, not bullying people, but actually being in situations where there was someone on the periphery or someone being left out and noticing that and not doing anything. That, that, I, that, that really bugs me. Uh, like many people, um, there were a lot of people who talked about regrets, about regretted not going to funerals. And there's one funeral that I'm thinking of, uh, a guy who I worked with. I wasn't, very, I wasn't like a close friend, but I, I didn't go to his funeral because I was like really busy that day. And I still regret that. Um, so that's a, that's a, that's a smaller one. Um, I'm a, you know, you, you, for the folks who are interested in careers, which is a lot of your audience I know, one of my favorite techniques is what Tina Selig at Stanford University calls a failure resume. Like I've made a failure resume, a list of all of my setbacks and mistakes and blunders and you have list you actually done it hell yeah you <laughs> list you list all those and then you um think about like what did you learn from that and then how can you apply it going forward and so 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 again you know for me you know you can't spend a few years on a topic yeah without it changing you particularly a topic with such emotional freight as a regret what would be your, your reason for someone just to pick up the book? Like, why, why would I want to walk into a bookstore, open up Amazon, and, and order this book? Because I think it's going to allow you to understand our mo your most misunderstood emotion. You're, I think you're going to see regret in a new light and not be scared of it, but instead realize that regret gives you the clues to lead a life of success and meaning and contribution. So take yourself back to being 20 years old, Dan. What advice would you give yourself? I know I, I, I won't ask how many years that's that's rewinding the clock for me. It's getting it's getting quite far back there. But yeah, it's what advice me. would you give yourself? Um, what advice would I give myself? Um, well, here's the thing. It's an interesting question because I think 20 year old me would not have listened to any advice because 20 year old mm -hmm. me thought he had it all figured out. But if mm -hmm. I could somehow penetrate that thick skull, um, I would say to him. Um, don't think you have to have it all planned out. So mellow out a little bit. Don't worry at all about what other people think. They're not thinking about you. And the most important thing that you can do is just try to make a contribution. There's probably a lot of 20 year olds hearing that who are thinking, I'm trying to come up with the one thing I gotta, I gotta, I gotta pick the major, I gotta pick the career. Yeah. And I totally, I totally understand that. I totally understand that and I empathize with that. But many of these decisions are less monumental than that. There's kind of a focusing illusion that when we think when we're making a decision, we think that that's the most important decision there is. And so for me, I think a, a tool is to make decisions for fundamental reasons rather than instrumental reasons, which goes to what you were talking about before about careers as a line, that if we make decisions if I decide I'm going to major in this because it's going to lead to that, which is going to lead to that, which is going to lead to that, I think that's a bad idea because 
it's a, it's, I think it's a bad bet because you have no idea where it's going to lead. If you major in something because you like it, because it's interesting, because you find it compelling, major in that because you're going to learn a lot, you're going to do really well, and you have no idea where it's going to lead. And so, you know, the, the, the reason that I like making decisions for fundamental reasons rather than instrumental reasons is not because I have this noble view of the world, it's that instrumental reasons don't work because the world is so complicated. So you're better off just making decisions for fundamental reasons, doing things you care about that are meaningful and that contribute, and, and being alert to opportunity along the way, recognizing that, as you said earlier, that the path is not a path, it's the opposite of a line. It's a, it's a messy, three-dimensional um, squiggle. Yeah, yeah. But it's almost that idea you brought up earlier around, like, if it sticks on the list. I mean, you've got, probably got a lot of ideas, you're bouncing these around, you're confused, you don't know what it is, but, you know, put it on a list, and if it sticks there, there's probably a reason why it's stuck on the list. You fell yeah, in love with yeah, it. Yeah. You know, all those things that might feel like, I'm going to keep doing that. Yeah. The other, thing, the other thing that I'd say to younger people is that, like, sometimes we have the sequence wrong. We think, okay, I'm going I'm I'm to figure out what I'm going to do and then do it. But... What I found in my own life, and I think the lives of others, is that that sequence is off. That actually the way to figure out what you want to do is to do stuff. So the doing actually leads to the figuring out rather than the other way around. Uh, flip it. Fascinating. So that's the advice you'd give yourself. What was the best advice somebody ever gave you? Uh, as a writer, I think the best advice that anybody gave me was an editor who once said, what is the, you know, I was confused about something and I, I, I turned in a draft of a piece that was crap. And, and he said, um, what's the promise you're making to the reader? And for so, so whatever reason, at that point in my life, I was like, whoa. Uh, and I yeah, think about yeah. that a lot. So when I think about when I'm writing something, it's like, what's, okay, what's the promise, or, or making anything? What's the promise I'm making to people? Because I want to know, I want to be clear about that promise, and I want to deliver on that promise. How about the worst advice? <laughs> um, you have to go to law school because you need something to fall back on. Uh, I'm sure that it hits a lot of people in the gut hearing that. What's the legacy you hope to leave behind, Dan? Oh, you know, uh, I mean, at, at some level is that, I, you know, I want to uh, have people in my life who I love and who love me. That's the most important thing, truly. I'm at a real, I don't know if I would have said that, Tyler, 25 years ago, but it seems clear as a freaking bell right now. Um, and the other thing in terms of the work is that, you know, I want people to say, hey, I read that dude's book and you know what? I saw the world a little differently and I did one thing a little differently that made my life better. That's, that's enough for me. I, I feel like actually just on that point about, you know, the people that I hope to love me, love me. Uh, I feel like I heard Warren Buffett talk about that at some point, you know, oh, somebody really? that ex externally, you know, checks all the boxes of success. And yeah. just said, like, at the end of the day, this, I mean, really what I'm aiming at now is that the people I hope that love me still do. And I uh, just yeah, felt like it was really... I mean, you have, you have people in your life who love you and whom you love. I mean, I think that comes out very clearly in these connection regrets. That's ultimately yeah. what they're about. Huh. Um, when people say, if only I'd reached out, they, they, what they care about is that sense of connection and affinity with another human being. Uh, which is a form of love. It's not in, in love in a broader sense. It's not love only in the romantic sense. It's love in the, in the love that we have for our parents and our kids and our siblings and our relatives, but also the love we have for our friends and even for our colleagues. 
I heard you give a commencement speech once, watch the speech. I mean, you're, I think one of the gifts that you offer is just the clarity that, that the ideas come from you. You talked about this experiment with the letter E, and I don't want to put you on the spot. I don't know if you remember that, but it was this idea of kind of perspective taking. Could, do you remember that? Like, what was that notion, and, and why is it so important for people to think about that concept? Well, this is some research. This is a research technique in social psychology since uh, I think the early 1980s to measure perspective taking. And, and what they do, they don't say what they're measuring, but what they what they what they do is they give people actually erasable markers, and they say, on your forehead, draw for me a capital E. And there are two ways to draw the E. You can draw the E like this so that I can see it, or I can draw the E like this so that you can see it. And this ends up being just a way to test perspective taking. I think you know. There's not a right answer or a wrong answer because one of the things that it shows is that the situation and the conditions that you're in will often determine which way the E points. Uh, so if you're feeling super powerful, you often have sure. a, an E that points in the self-direction. If you're feeling in some ways powerless and vulnerable, you often will have it in the, in the other direction. Uh, so it, so it's, it's less about, it's partly about our muscle memory and our innate instincts, but it's also a lot about the conditions and situations that we're in. Hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. If you take us back, I mean, the, 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 I mean, the 101 of, of motivation, what was 1.0, 2.0, 3.0? Like, what should we understand here? Well, you know, as I said earlier, human beings are a mix of drives. And so we can have a drive in organizations that's purely about just survival, and that's you know in the very very long time ago that's possible. But we also had in, in for most of the time that we've had organizations, they were built on this second drive, the reward and punishment drive. That is the belief that if we actually configure the external rewards and punishments properly, people would respond accordingly. And and my view is that given the nature of work today, that's an outmoded view. And what we really want is a different motivational regime. And I think that what you want to do in that motivation, that motivational regime where people are doing more complicated, sophisticated work is draw more on people's intrinsic motivation. One way to do that is to pay them well, pay them fairly. This is really important. You've got to pay people well and pay them fairly, almost to the point where you want to take the issue of money off the table. And if you pay them well and pay them fairly, then what you want to offer is autonomy, a sense of sovereignty over what they do, how they do it, when they do it, who they do it with. Mastery, which is a chance to make progress and, and, um, and get better at something that matters. And then also purpose, the, the opportunity to make a contribution internally or make a difference externally. And that is harder to execute, but it seems pretty clear to me that that is the better recipe for enduring motivation. My gosh, it's been a real honor to have this conversation. Yeah, thanks a lot. I've enjoyed it. It's really interesting. So thanks for, thanks for taking time to do it.